to a big conference, you're excited to gather and hear all the best teaching on whatever topic it is, and and you rush to the venue, you find your seat, and you wait with anticipation, and then the, the speaker appears to much applause, and they approach the mic, and they say, I don't have anything special to say today. I do want to remind you that you're not that special. I'm not special either. That's sort of a slight turn against what we expect in those circumstances. We expect a a headlining speaker to hammer how much we need their message because of how great it is. But if you've studied 1 Corinthians with us, you know that Paul has written much like that disappointing speaker. He argued from chapter 1, verse 17, through chapter 2, verse 5, that everything about the Christian faith, its message, its members, its ministers, does not accord with what the world expects. Corinth and and Greek society cherished the philosophical and rhetorical sophistication, but Paul preached a, a, a straightforward gospel that demonstrates the truth about Christ. And then Paul shifted focus in chapter 2, verse 6, saying that even though he had not come using lofty words of wisdom that the worldly would accept, choosing instead to preach Christ crucified, still he actually did speak wisdom. First Corinthians 2, 6 to 13 is an explanation of Paul's claim to speak wisdom if it is understood rightly. So the, the verses before us are Paul's explanation of the difference between worldly and spiritual wisdom. And the main point is that God must reveal divine wisdom through the work of his spirit. God must reveal divine wisdom through the work of his spirit. And we're going to think about this in three points. The contrast, the caution, and the comfort. So, of course, first, the contrast. And the running contrast throughout this passage is between Christians who have accepted God's explanation, his his revelation of, of what the world is, what it's about, and what we must do, and those who have not accepted it. Verse 6 summarizes the, the point he makes until the end of verse 16, although we'll consider some of that next week. So verse 6, Yet among the mature... We do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. There's something really important right from the outset concerning how Paul and the apostles distributed wisdom, quote, among the mature. So far too many have and still do 
take that to mean that Paul gave the gospel to basic believers, but had sort of special knowledge for advanced Christians. So this verse has been used to create two classes of believers, the lowly and the mature. But here's the thing. We can't overlook the cultural background that Paul faced in this letter. So regardless of what English word appears in your translation, because it does differ a little, the ESV says the mature. So the Greek word behind mature is teleos, and it doesn't really matter. Uh, exact, I'm not going to change the translation because the point is that Greek mystery cults used that term to refer to their new initiates. So, whether Paul meant this sort of humorously or sarcastically, for those who wanted the mystical, mystery wisdom of the world, Paul ransacked terminology from these mystery cults in Corinth and a to, in order to refer to people who have become Christians. So the mature in this instance are, are simply people who are inducted as believers. So they're just Christians. And the, the rest of this passage makes a series of contrasts between these believers and those who bow to unspiritual wisdom. So verses 6 and 7 contrast the method and the endurance of worldly and spiritual wisdom. Method and endurance. So we we see, verse 6, that worldly wisdom comes from the rulers of this age. But verse 7, spiritual wisdom was hidden but has come from God. Now, the word secret and our translation has has been misplaced here, uh, as we might better render this phrase. And I'm not doing this just for the sake of doing it. I'll explain why this is important. So, but we speak wisdom, the wisdom of the hidden wisdom of God, in mysteries. Secret. Let's shift it to the end to be in mystery. That may not help you right out of the gate at first, right? What's in? How is in mystery any clearer? Unless, were you paying attention to our first reading, unless we keep in mind the way that Paul used the word mystery throughout his letters to refer to the fact that God has revealed that which was previously unknown to us, namely his plan to save people from every nation through the work of Jesus Christ. So we read Ephesians 3, 3 to 6, and the same point is repeated later in that passage. You can check it yourself and other verses but three to six the mystery was made known to me by revelation as i have written briefly when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and the prophets by the spirit the this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So mystery, therefore, is revealed truths 
about God's plan of salvation. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul said he did not speak wisdom from the rulers of the world, but rather wisdom that God had actually revealed by His Spirit about how the gospel works. The difference in method of wisdom is that worldly wisdom comes from the cultural elites, the the rulers of this age, but spiritual wisdom comes by revelation from the Spirit. Paul also distinguished the ultimacy, the the endurance of these wisdoms. We we see verse 6, that the wisdom of this age is doomed to pass away with its rulers. But verse 7, God's wisdom has been decreed, predestined since before even creation and has been predestined for our glory. So we might think of this as, as we watch the evening news, right? Western culture, for whatever unthinkable reasons, seems to take its political cues from celebrities. I mean, talk shows used to be sort of entertaining chit-chat, but have become platforms for progressivism, which is bizarre. And celebrities are the current, I guess, cultural rulers of this age. And yet, it seems that, to me, the most politically outspoken stars seem to be in and out of rehab and repeatedly fracturing marriages and other relationships almost the most. And still, because they seem cool on screen or whatever, we follow them like moths to a flame. And we know, don't we, that these people are doomed, perhaps not necessarily in their eternal destinies if they were to come to Christ, but at least in life and career, at least because stardom flares and fades so quickly. I mean, the biggest stars of yesteryear are hardly even known today. But God's wisdom, His plan of salvation, was predestined before the ages began and result in our glory. The divine wisdom to which we submit has existed before God even created time. And it has secured our glory. So the word glory here refers to our ultimate salvation, our glorification when we will be made completely like Christ in body and soul. The glorification lasts forever. The, the wisdom of this age, to, to make that contrast clear, wilts and dwindles, but the message of salvation by grace alone through the work of the Messiah has been decreed from eternity to endure throughout eternity. The contrast is between wisdom founded in frail human wisdom and and wisdom founded within God himself. And that brings us to our 
second point. The caution. Okay, so the, the last point, consider the foundational contrast between worldly and divine wisdom. And this point we'll consider the next contrast with a specific focus on highlighting the ways that we need to make sure that we submit to what God has told us. So let's read together verses 8 to 10. None of the rulers of this age understood this divine wisdom for or because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. But these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So these verses discuss how the rulers of this age do not know spiritual truth. Paul outright said that they obviously don't understand ultimate truth because if they did, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus Christ. And this points at those who were influential in the society of Jesus' day, the religious leaders in particular. And despite how they had access to the Old Testament Scriptures, they still did not understand God's decreed mystery that He would save through Christ crucified. It is obvious, though, from even any quick reading of the Gospels that the religious leaders who took Christ to be crucified were afraid of losing their cultural power. If we think about verses from John 11, 47 and 48. So, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were the cultural elite of their day, uh, their time and place, and they resisted the gospel message just like the cultural elite in our day resisted. Paul made that point as he paraphrased Isaiah 64, verse 4, in, in verse 9 of our text. He, he drew on Isaiah to make clear that raw human reason cannot find the plan of salvation, which we'll consider more next week in verses 14 to 16. But here we see that our eyes cannot see, ears cannot hear, and hearts cannot even invent the wonderful things that God would do for His people. In other words, we do not approach learning about the Gospel in the same way that we approach learning about things like geology, right? In geology, we go out, we find a rock, we look at a rock, and we process what we saw about the rock. So we we are supposed to, in that instance, use our senses and inductive powers to make some conclusions about this rock. 
But we come to know truth about the gospel in far different ways. Right? Verse 10. But these things, namely the wonderful things God will do for His people, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. God has to reveal in special and specific ways the the truth of the gospel if we're to know them. So, if we think about it this way, Romans 1 tells us that natural revelation, so, so the creation itself as as God made it to display certain truths about Him, the, that creation as it naturally reveals tells us about God's invisible attributes, His eternal power, and His divine nature. As Romans, to quote Romans 1. But, but, creation does not tell us about the gospel. Obviously so, because Creation didn't need the gospel. We need the gospel in light of the fact that we sinned. God made the world, said it was good, and we made it bad. So that means, that means we cannot use our senses to look around the world and discover salvation. But we have to listen to what God would say about His divine plan decreed from before the ages. Paul was clear that the rulers of this age had tried to use their senses and wisdom to discover spiritual truth and had failed. But God has revealed these things to us in whom He has worked by the Spirit. And so that raises a difficult question for us. In that, how are we trying to know God? Christians want, I mean, we do, we want to know the true God. And we do read the scriptures and hear them preached. And yet, even in that principled commitment to hearing God's revelation, it doesn't prevent us from at times slipping into listening to the inventions of human wisdom. So it is easy, isn't it, to be saturated with the news from the internet and television, uh, so much so that wicked messages switch from appalling to appealing, right? We hear progressivism drone on and on long enough about what they know has to be true, since they are the rulers of this age, that it starts to seem plausible sometimes. The the authority of Scripture, though, which we firmly hold, is not an abstract doctrine, but concerns our actual sanctification. As believers, we must be working. Working. It's an active thing to take every thought captive to Scripture. We must put effort into listening. To be hearing people who listen to God's revelation rather than drifting to the opinions of our hearts. So the caution is that we must devote ourselves to learning from the Spirit through the Scripture. And that brings us to our 
final point, the comfort. We saw first the distinction between worldly and divine wisdom, and we saw the need to be on our guard against drifting away from the divine wisdom towards that worldly wisdom. And now we need to look at how we might be assured that we have encountered divine wisdom. So let's read starting halfway through verse 10. And then we'll go to verse 13. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting or or explaining spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So Paul, okay, here's what happens here. Paul made an analogy about how no one can really know what a person is thinking except that person. So you might be thinking right now that I'm, that I'm thinking about this sermon and I might be thinking about popsicles. Now that's, that's actually, that in my notes. So I am thinking about this sermon, (laughs) but only I really know what is in my head. And so it is with God. We're not able to use even the best of human intuition to peer into God's mind and know his plans. But our God is generous. Even, even though we cannot look across the gap into the supernatural, God has spoken so that we might know what we need to know to be in a relationship with Him. And more than that, God has given His own Spirit to indwell us so that we might take part in the divine wisdom. We say that stuff a lot, though. And here's the thing. That is not a light point. And it is not the fanciful, experiential nonsense that some promote about having the indwelling spirit. I mean, do you see, did you notice the the deep, rich Trinitarianism in this passage? The spirit is able to move even within the depths of the Godhead, not searching to find some unknown information as if this God's Spirit didn't know something, but searching to reveal more divine wisdom to those who are not within the Godhead. The Spirit isn't some abstract force that moves our emotions. He is, notice, He is, verse 12, the Spirit who is from God. More elaborately, the the Spirit who proceeds from God. Many in the ancient church pointed to this verse to demonstrate the deity of the Spirit as only that which is God can know God and proceed from the depths of God. 
and as richly theological as that is, the practical point is this Spirit is the Spirit we have received. Not some worldly notions of cultural dawns, but the divine person of the Holy Spirit Himself has taken residence in you by faith, enabling you to understand truths that come from God. The Spirit has inspired the Scripture to give words taught by the Spirit and has indwelt God's people so that as spiritual truths are interpreted or explained, verse 13, spiritual people, namely those who have the Spirit by faith, can understand them. The comfort then is knowing that God Himself by the Spirit teaches us divine truth through the Scripture. But here, I think we overlook this sometimes. That it is no small thing to have God Himself live within you. Do we think about that enough? God once dwelled in a temple but has now in every way made His people His temple. I mean, what a wonderful gift that no heart could imagine the best we tried. And you might wonder how you can know that you have that gift. Peter said in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know that you have spiritual wisdom, Peter said, come to Jesus. When we come to Christ and receive the forgiveness of sin, then we receive the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit works beforehand to bring us to faith, but dwells within us to sustain and deepen our faith once He has brought us to Christ. So let us then flee to Christ as we always must. We take refuge beneath the arms of His cross, knowing that He died to forgive dreadful sinners. He rose from the grave to secure eternal life for those who trust in Him. And He ascended to heaven to send the Spirit to reveal divine wisdom to us always landing on how Christ has become to us wisdom from God. Let's pray. Father God, 
We live in a, in a world, even in the church, that is so confused about what spiritual means. And even our notions of what the Holy Spirit does are confused at times. And so we are thankful for this message that the Spirit's work within us is to point us at the Gospel. And so we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes again on that rich gospel message. Jesus Christ died for sins and raised for our justification. Help us to cling to that. And as we do, cherish the fact that it means if we trust in that message, the Spirit of God dwells inside us. Help us to rejoice. God Himself has decided to live in us. And help us as as struggling and as weak as we are, that as you send us into the world, that we might shine that presence a bit brighter this week than we have before into the world around us. That you might use us in our words and deeds to show people their need for Jesus Christ as well. And we pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen.